Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. Okay, I got to take a breath because there are some writers and some thinkers who've had a way of helping me understand my own faith and my own politics more clearly. And it's not a terribly long list for me, even shorter of the folks who are still with us and still writing. Uh, theologians like N.T. Wright and J. Cameron Carter come to mind, uh, novelist, essayist, uh, Marilyn Robinson, as well as um, uh, Wendell Berry would definitely be right up there. And then writers like David Brooks and Michael Gerson have a way of articulating what I've already been grappling with and always seeming to bring some clarity to the chaos. Today's guest, Peter Weiner, is most certainly on that list. Peter worked in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. In the George W. Bush White House, Pete was deputy director of speech writing before becoming director of the Office of Strategic Initiatives. He was also involved in President Bush's 2004 reelection campaign, as well as Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in 2012. He is also a contributing writer to the New York Times, which is where he wrote a column in January of 2016 uh, that he would not be voting for Donald Trump under any circumstances. In fact, uh, he wrote a piece as early as July of 2015 saying, just say no to Donald Trump. Uh, Pete is a contributing editor to the, uh, at The Atlantic and is the author of The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. How indeed, Pete Weiner, what an honor to have you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for the very generous introduction, Corey. It's great to be with you, and I'm really looking forward to the uh, to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've been uh, I I'm a consistent reader of your work in various uh, various platforms, uh, but the last few days I've definitely been more ensconced than usual. Uh, so I have lots of questions. <laughs> good, good. I, I I hope I have some sufficient answers. And uh, looking forward to a conversation with you, too. Yeah. Well, one of the things that caught my attention right at the beginning of the of the new book, uh, well, it's not uh, what was it? 20, 2019. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you mentioned that your parents, Alfred and Inga, is that how you said Inga? Yes, it is. Yeah. Immigrated to America from Germany. So I was curious, when was that under what circumstances and how did their experience ultimately shape your own theological and political beliefs? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. My, my mom uh, immigrated, uh, came over when she was uh, 13 years old. And so that would have been, uh, she was born in 1919. So it would have been, uh, you know, in the, in the uh, 30s. My dad came, came uh, later in, in, uh, in the early 50s. It actually turned out that the person who sponsored my dad for immigration 
was uh, my uh, mom's mother. And um, she had been in Germany and had dental work needed. My dad was working in dentistry and um, that connection was made. So that's how my parents met actually through, through, uh, through that. I'm not sure that, that that experience that they had had much of an influence on my faith journey. Uh, it may have, but I, I, I'm not aware of what it would have been. And I'm happy to talk to them about my faith journey and, and my own experience with, with my parents. I do think it, it influenced my views on, on politics in several ways. I developed an interest in politics at a pretty young age. Um, it was natural to me. It wasn't anything that was, you know, that my parents consciously and intentionally decided to impart uh, on me. I just found myself interested in in, in uh, world events and and politics, not obsessively so. I was very interested in sports and other other things, but I was always drawn drawn to it. My first conscious memory of really thinking about politics was when I was in sixth grade, which was the McGovern-Nixon election in 1972. And there was a girl in my class, Margaret Haney, who was a McGovern supporter, and I was a Nixon supporter because my parents were, you know, somewhat Republican-leaning and conservative. They were not ideological or particularly partisan. But as I got older, um, I would talk about politics with them, primarily my dad, but really with both of them. They uh, had a world perspective. My dad, in particular, had traveled a lot, was mostly uh, interested in international affairs. Um, and so we, we had a lot of conversations about that. But not only that, we used to watch the news together and have a lot of conversations. When I was in junior high, uh, social studies was my favorite class. My teachers were liberal. As I said, I was more conservative. At that time, there was a pretty intense debate about the Vietnam War. My views were were not well shaped. Uh, again, I think they were they were largely shaped by my by my uh, parents, which is often the case with with uh, with kids. But over time, I I adopted my own views um, in terms of public policy and conservatism as a political philosophy. And so, I think my parents had a big influence on my interest in politics. The other thing that they I, I think influenced was they had a real deep love of country, and and often it manifests itself. Uh, most in in immigrants, um, they see America through different eyes, and sometimes eyes that are that are um, that are more uh, drawn uh, to, to to America, partly because their experiences can be so much different and worse. And my parents would tell me that they uh, America was sort of a a, a beacon to, to much of the rest of the. Uh, of the world. And so they had a kind of immigrant's love for, for the country, which I think was imparted to uh, to me. What was the circumstance? I'm trying to place you. You said your mom was born in 1919. Mm-hmm. So she would have been, uh, I don't know if they were engaged theologically uh, as Christians when they were in Germany, but one of my favorite um, heroes of the 20th century, early 20th century was Bonhoeffer. Yeah. So I was curious if, if there was any connection there. There wasn't. Uh, interestingly, I have a good friend, Tobias Kremer, who's uh, teaching at Oxford, whose grandfather, maybe his great grandfather, uh, knew Bonhoeffer because he taught uh, at uh, in Germany. It was a minister at that at that time, actually, and so he was part of that small and courageous group of of the confessional church resisting the German national church in the in the 20s and 30s in, in Germany. My parents were, were not, I don't, my theology, my faith really wasn't shaped um, tremendously by my, by my parents. 
I don't really have much of a memory of going to church when I was younger. Um, my dad, I think when I began my journey of faith, sort of at the end of high school and into college, my dad was, I think at that point, an agnostic. He had grown up Catholic, turned atheist in his 20s, not in, not in a, in, in a hardened or aggressive way, but just didn't believe in God, moved toward agnosticism. And only at the end of his life, uh, later part of his life, did he adopt faith long after I had. And, and my two sisters um, actually came of faith. We were all independent of, of, of each other. My mom, I was in a sense, believed in God, but wasn't imparting um, church teaching or, or church doctrine. Um, it was more of a just a belief that there was a good God who was active in the um, in in the world. So my journey of faith was really independent of of them. So you and Curtis on a recent uh, podcast of of their uh, Curtis's and, and David's great podcast, Good Faith. Yeah. Uh, I think you had mentioned that you shared the same uh, mentor in college. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Hayner? Yeah, Steve. His name, his name was Steve Hayner. And um, Steve had a number of, of uh, mentees uh, over the course of, of his life. I, I met Steve. Um, well, the, the context is uh, Steve, when I met him, was the um, student youth minister at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. So I went to University of Washington and UPres was a church that a lot of students attended. And Steve uh, was uh, the organizer and leader of a group uh, called The Inn. And when Steve took that over in the early 70s, I think, there were about 30 people that gathered in a building um, that was next to University Presbyterian, the main sanctuary, the main church. But when I got there, I started school in the fall of 79 and went through to, uh, you know, um, UW after, after that. Um, there were about 900 people that would come. It would be Tuesday nights. I think it was 10 o'clock, if I remember, nine or 10 o'clock at night. And it was a, you know, it was a worship service in which there was singing, usually contemporary Christian songs. Um, Steve would, you know, deliver a message. There was communion. Um, so it's, it, you know, the model, the format, the paradigm, the template was not unusual by, by any means. What made it unusual was really Steve. And what, when I think the reason Steve had such an impact on Curtis and me and so many other um, friends of ours was uh, his integrity, um, both theological and as a, as, as a person. He was very, very thoughtful and wise, a wonderful listener. And he had a kind of inviting personality. I remember when I was in college, I was struggling with some issues that I'd never shared with anybody else. Um, in retrospect, they really weren't that big issues, but I didn't know that at the time. They had really been inflated, partly because I hadn't shared them with anybody. And I decided I would uh, share them with Steve. And so I still remember walking to his office. I think it was a Tuesday afternoon around three o'clock. And I was so nervous about it. I almost turned around and decided uh, I'm not going to go through with it, but I did. And I began to talk to him, share uh, with him. And he was just wonderful. And, and that really was part of the kind of, I think, ministry that Steve had. And of course, that creates a deep bond with you if you feel like if you're having some struggles and someone is there to listen well to you, uh, to walk the journey with you. And um, so over the course of my life, Steve was involved in key moments. Uh, he became 
uh, president of the InterVarsity uh, for 13 years. And then he became president of Columbia Theological Seminary in Georgia. Uh, and he tragically passed away of uh, pancreatic cancer in 20, 2015. But Steve was was a a, a model uh, to to me, and um, and one of those people that you know when you when you walk through life, live life, um, and think through how to act, and in my case, what you know what to write, what to say, um, how to conduct oneself in in human relationships with the people you love, the people you don't love. I try and think about certain people or not, not try to think, they just pop into my mind. And I, and I do think, what would they say? What, what would their view be of what, what I'm saying or doing? And Steve is one of those, those people. And then those kind of people are important because they, 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 they can be good checks uh, on, um, you know, on how you live your life. It's, um, it's a real blessing to have folks that act as somewhat of a moral compass you know, yeah. you can look down and, and, you know, it's almost a flip to say, uh, what would Jesus do or, or something like that? Um, but to have real individuals who, whose face and, and, and just entire countenance you can imagine before you when you're making, um, when you're making certain decisions, or just even in the moment to have that as a compass. And now that you describe, uh, now that you describe Steve, he, I think you mentioned him in a piece, gosh, it must be three or four years ago. Uh, you've done this series of pieces for the New York Times uh, right before Christmas. And that particular piece was on grace. Yeah. And uh, he, how he, his testimony in his last days when he realized that it wasn't a matter of years, but a matter of weeks and, or months. And he, and he died not too long after that. But what really caught my attention, somebody that you've collaborated with a number of times, Jonathan Rauch, how he, I think you asked him, um, and forgive me if I don't have it all clear, but I think you asked him his understanding of grace. Do you do you remember that? And do you do you remember what he said? I I do. Um, it was uh, yeah. John is a is a is a close friend of mine, uh, and John is is uh, not a not a believer. Um, he's a he, Jewish um, atheist uh, and gay. So I've met John. I don't know. I guess the first time was in the around the mid mid 1990s. So we knew each other, but the friendship has really grown over recent years in particular. And and John is a wonderful and wise, wise person. But and what you're referring to is that I had sent Steve, who had been doing some writings during during his his uh, uh, on the Caring Bridge. Um, and so he was sort of a journal uh, of his walk through cancer and toward death. And it was one that he and his wife, Cheryl, did together. And this thing was ended up being visited by like hundreds of thousands of people it really, really resonated because it was so faithful, so vulnerable, so transparent. I mean, it was very true to, to Steve. So it, I think it offered in a way people who wouldn't have otherwise known Steve. Those words were insights into, into who he was. And th- there, there was one particular post uh, near the end of Steve's life that, that, uh, I found quite moving and I sent a link to it to, to John and he wrote back, I don't have the exact words, but, but he wrote back and he said, I, I don't, a uh, couple of things. I think one was um, I don't still don't fully understand what grace is, but when I see people live their lives, move toward death the way Steve is, I understand it better. And that 
it's people like that who made him wish that he could believe uh, the way John has described it to me. And I think publicly is he's sort of colorblind on, on faith. It's just at a frequency that he doesn't hear. Um, and he realizes other people are able to see those colors, uh, but he's, but he's, uh, he's not. Uh, and there's certainly downsides. Um, That's a really interesting way to describe it. You know, some yes. folks can hear notes in between the note, the 88 keys on the piano. Right. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting that it, it, it may very well be, but he simply doesn't hear it or see it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, analogy, um, and very helpful to, uh, to me. Um, and, uh, so we've, you know, John and I have talked about, uh, about those, those, uh, those matters, but, but it was interesting to me, um, that, uh, you know, the power of the Christian faith, when I think it's lived out in an authentic way, can really reach people, even people who are not believers. And the thing that I think most cuts through the noise and most reaches people um, who, are, who, who, are, who are not um, followers of Jesus and those who are, are manifestations of grace. Because I think that's a, that is a concept that is largely if not alien to the rest of the world, it's difficult to understand. And anytime people, I think, see authentic grace expressed, um, it, it can be a very moving thing and, and touch people's hearts. Again, even people who are, who are not, not believers. Yeah. You know, I've, I've um, said on occasion that I have more empirical proof of the existence of God, but I couldn't prove it to anyone else. <laughs> it's, it's, it's for me. And, and right. the other um, most empirically verifiable thing uh, in creation is that, well, number one, there is a God, but number two, I ain't God. <laughs> so, right. but, the, the, um, but again, it's one of those iron ironic things where I can't prove that to anybody else, but it's more provable to me. <laughs> right, right, right. Though that's a very important point. I, I, I agree with you. What's, what's important to us may not be important to other people. And in the end, right, it, it is faith. It's not a logical proposition. But grace is one of those, one of those virtues that can't, that I have yet to find a persuasive argument in uh, some folks who are friends of mine who are atheists. Um, there's a lot of explanations for some qualities in, in human condition and how we relate to each other that can be explained through evolution. But we didn't, a lot of other creatures evolved in a certain way that, that are perfectly explainable, I think. I, 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 don't, I, I don't find any um, contradictions, frankly, with uh, the, the evolution. But grace uh, is one of those things that I, I don't find any explanations other than the existence of God. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does does make sense. I mean, I think it is a concept that that is very difficult to to uh, parse or cohere um, apart from from a perspective with God. It may not be impossible. I, I haven't I haven't thought through it carefully enough, but I certainly think that that God and and in particular the the the, the Christian story and narrative um, makes grace much easier to apprehend. There are of course people who are not not believers, not Christians who. Who themselves embody grace, and, and someone like John uh, is Roush is one one of them. 
Um, but I do think that, um, that people who, um, as a general matter, even people who might be oriented toward, toward grace, uh, grace toward the world, grace toward other people, the capacity for, for forgiveness. I do think that, um, you have more tools in the toolbox if you're a person of the Christian Christian faith. It's so absolutely central uh, to Christianity, rightly understood. One of the books that had a big impact on me and one of my favorite authors is Philip Yancey. And he wrote a book in the later part of the 1990s called What's So Amazing About Grace. He also wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew, um, which had a you know, big influence on me and also my daughter, um, who's a big Philip Yancey, Yancey fan. And that's a really good place I, I uh, to start if somebody wants to understand grace. And it helped me understand grace better than I did, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You also, I think you also quoted uh, something from C.S. Lewis, who's a, you know, another very, very approachable, very literate. Um, and, and he comes from a place of understanding what it means to... Uh, <laughs> not just not believe if not actually shaking your fist at the possibility of a God. Um, no, I was just going to say, it's, it's interesting. I'm actually reading right now uh, dabbling back into a couple of books that I've, I've read through before, but one is the, the reluctant convert by uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name and also the inklings, which is a book written in the late 1970s by Humphrey Carpenter, I think is his name. I was going to mention, but it's a different book. It's an account. It's a really thorough account of the Inklings that was written. It wasn't in the late The 70s. Fellowship? The Fellowship. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was right. That was a book that was written, yeah, recently. I mean, within, yeah. I think, the last decade or so. And that was the the last sort of major book that uh, had been written, uh, or the most recent major book that had been written after this one by I think it's Humphrey Carpenter, I think is his, is his, his name. It was, you know, that's such an extraordinary group of people, the Inklings, such an important literary group and Lewis and Tolkien and Barfield and yeah. Charles Williams and so forth. It was interesting that um, R- Russell Moore, who's a friend of mine and f- formerly uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention for a variety of reasons, l- left it. And um, Russell had a crisis of faith when he was 15 and um, I've talked to him about the the power and the influence of C.S. Lewis on his life. Lewis was an important figure in my life, maybe yours. A lot of he influenced a lot of a lot of people. But what uh, what Russell said is um, is it wasn't uh, simply or even mainly what Lewis wrote. It was how he wrote that there was a winsomeness to to Lewis, a lack of defensiveness, obviously an intellectual integrity. And there was an accessibility to it. And there was just a posture toward the world that Lewis had. It was sort of at ease with the world, um, was not hard-edged, and met people, I think, where they where they were that, uh, that really sort of invited uh, Russell in and has invited millions and millions of other people in over the, um, over the decades. I'm Brian Kaler, the award-winning podcast host of Dangerous Dogma the authority on questioning authority. If you're a fan of Joel Olstein, Paula White, or John MacArthur, then this is not the show for you. On Dangerous Dogma, we challenge dangerous teachings found in various strands of Christianity while also taking seriously Jesus' own teachings that lead us into dangerous places. Listen wherever you get your podcast or at dogma.wordandway.org.
I, I had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Moore uh, not too long ago. And one of the profound takeaways was when we were talking about his own crisis of faith and uh, something that you were talking about just a, a few minutes ago was having mentors um, that you can imagine uh, what they might say in any given uh, situation or um, they, they serve as somewhat of a guide, if even in your imagination. Well, one of mine was um, Ravi, Ravi Zacharias. Mm. I had a really um, close relationship with uh, Ravi. We called him Ravi G. Mm. Um, and I, I, I was sharing that with Dr. Moore. And it was very helpful what he said. Uh, I won't go into um, all of it, but at the end of the, I think it's when we were talking about apologia, where apologia is mentioned, gentleness and respect, and it kind of expanded into a larger um, discussion about scripture. And at the end of the day, my takeaway was that Ravi's failures uh, and, and the damage uh, that he did and the damage that's still being cleaned up or dealt with, I should say, is um, doesn't make scripture any less true. You know, it's, and now I'm just thinking out loud, but the creator God, even from just a literary standpoint, the creator God was, uh, was good and perfect and sovereign. And, you know, he was, he is, you know, and the, at the very beginning in, in chapter three, the human creatures failures didn't make God any less God. It didn't make God any less good. Uh, in fact, that's kind of what the story is about, right? That's kind of what this whole project is about, that uh, in order for that, and again, I'm just, I'm st this isn't a well-formed thought, so I'm really just thinking out loud. Um, in order for that love to be of value, it needs to be a freely chosen love. For Adam and Eve to be in communion with their creator God, they need to have freely chosen that, but um, those creatures being not God, it was almost inevitable that at some point they would choose otherwise, <laughs> you know, right. but the God, the goodness of God is in that he, he accounted for all that. That was all, that was all planned for, you know, and then the rest of the story is about how he goes about redeeming his creation, how he goes about allowing for um, us to participate in that redemption project, you know, yeah. initially through, uh, Abraham and his descendants and my people, uh, and then around the person of Jesus sort of, um, continued and discontinued in, in, in many significant ways. So, sorry, I'm kind of, no, that was, so that was very, um, I appreciated you sharing that. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said and, and in, in what Russell, Russell said it, you know, I'd only, I'd only say about that. Uh, well, the first thing is I, I completely agree. Um, I believed actually was one of the earliest thoughts I had in my Christian journey was that, um, you know, if, if I was going to believe in it, in Christianity, it, it really depended fully on who Jesus was. And if he was who he claimed to be and who Christianity insists that he was, then that would command my allegiance um, no matter what. And if he wasn't, I wasn't going to participate in it no matter what it would do to my life, if it would create meaning or anything else. I didn't want to give my allegiance to something that was a lie. Having said that, um, and this is not contradicting what you or Russell said, it's just a, 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 maybe putting a, a, a caveat on it or, or an addendum to it. 
um, that when you see people like him fall and fail and so many others, and when you see, in my estimation, what's happened uh, to the Christian church, particularly the, 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 the evangelical church in America in recent years, where I think so much harm has been done, um, so much discrediting has been done, it just, uh, it, it has a catastrophic effect on the witness of the church, because ultimately we give our allegiance in a faith, in our case, to Jesus, but also to a community. Um, and the people who most shape our lives, like we were talking about earlier, tend to be people in our lives. Um, they, they, they walk with us through the journey. They help shape our own views. Um, you know, we are relational people. And if the people who uh, purport to be the rep, best representatives of the faith fail in such massive ways, fail in ways that injure and wound other people, um, in the way that Ravi Zacharias and so many others have, have done, so many scandals that have that have plagued the church, the Me Too movement, the way Russell's been treated, and Beth Moore and the Southern Baptist Convention, that has shakes people, uh, a lot of people to their core, and it certainly creates a huge obstacle to people who aren't of faith, um, because they say, look, this is a freak show, why would I want to join this? I had a conversation with a very close friend of mine, Carl Coppock, who was quite important in my own journey of faith. The first Bible study that I went through when I wasn't even a believer was with Carl. And I went back to Washington State a couple of years ago, and, and we were having, having uh, breakfast together. And he used the phrase generational catastrophe in terms of the gap between um, what our faith calls us to be and what is often playing out in our lives. And when you think about, you know, we're, we're, we're supposed to be, you know, stars like stars shining in, in the night sky. And when people fail and fail in huge ways uh, and in so many different ways, that is a huge, huge, huge problem. I'd be curious, how have you processed since you were close to Ravi Zacharias? I was not, I've never met him and, and he wasn't a particularly influential figure to me. I was just horrified, obviously, by by what he did, but how have you processed it and how have you made, uh, made sense of it? And has it altered in any respect to your own view of faith or Christians or how Christians should walk this journey? Yeah, I'm still processing, to be honest with you. Uh, interestingly, um, I had a conversation uh, with, I, I became friends with uh, Robbie's kids because they were closer in age to me. So I had, I had a conversation with one of his kids the other day, um, just a couple of days ago. Uh, and, and, you know, just still processing. I realized that this wasn't the first time that I deferred to someone and, and was uh, made, made myself very, very teachable, which can be a good, good quality that ultimately proved to say there were character flaws is I, I, I almost hesitate to say it because the, there are, there are victims, you know, and, and I don't want to sound dismissive as if, you know, he, um, he boasted everyone, you know, like it, it's, it's, it's um, the kinds of things that, that really have victims that are going to shape lives and families mm. uh, for, for many, many years to come. So there've been a, a number of um, things that I've actively tried to do. Um, you know, I had a conversation, a good friend of mine studied at Duke. He's a teacher at Fuller now. 
uh, and his specialty is ethics, New Testament ethics, really mm -hmm. dear, dear friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation, I've had numerous conversations with Tommy about it. Um, there was one that we, we kind of recorded actually, because I thought it was important folks, a lot of folks who know me, um, as well as folks who listen to this program, know that Ravi was a very influential figure in, in my life and my theological formation. So I thought it was important to have one of those conversations, you know, and share it with, with listeners here. So we included Tommy and um, Amy, Laura, uh, Amy Laura, another uh, ethics professor from Duke at Duke Divinity School. And um, so that, that, that was helpful. It forced me to think through, um, it, it's almost like there, there are potholes that I have to traverse. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's obstacles that get in my way that I bang up against. And I just need to work it through. I need yeah. to understand it. I need to understand it partly to just be um, fearful uh, and, and candid and brutally candid with myself that I'm not that far removed from that possibility, you know? So not to beat myself up or take a flagellum or anything, but, but to, to reckon with the reality that this, um, this malfunction in creation, this sin thing, uh, you know, it, it's in creation, but I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it too, you know? So again, I'm not being very articulate right now because it's still, it's still kind of a mess for me. Um, but conversations like that conversations uh, or parts of conversations like I had with Dr. Moore, um, good friends talking with Sarah the other day. Um, these are all little drops of, of grace, if you will, yeah. to help me make sense of it, um, to help me reckon with it. Also to help me reckon with where is my own culpability and is there anything I can, because there is damage there. Um, and to the degree that I advocated for him and celebrated his, his, you know, who he was in the world, uh, there's, there's at, at the very least, there's that culpability. So to what degree can I, can I heal, um, that damage that I participated in? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's, uh, yeah, I know it's a, it's a very moving and, and transparent, um, and articulate, um, expression of what you're going through. Uh, and it's, it's, it, 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 it's, re it's really, really hard. I mean, there was obviously no way that you would have known what he was doing and, and he influenced a lot of people. I mean, I know folks, so it's a reason that his ministry was as, as important as it was and <clears throat> excuse me, and it's as influential as it was. Um, and that's why people who, who have those kind of leadership positions have an extra obligation to live their lives with some degree of some measure of integrity and certainly not to live in such a corrupt and, and uh and malicious uh malicious way um but it's 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 hard uh it's hard to do and then you know at some point it just gets tiresome to have to make the argument that to other people and even to ourselves that we have to separate you know who jesus is and who his followers are the gap's not supposed to be that wide yeah yeah. I mean, if you read, if you read the, the, you know, the words of Paul, who fully acknowledges, obviously, that we're all sinful and fallen, but there's a notion of being a new creation of a transformed life. And I, I think what, what happens in, in my experience is a lot of people 
mouth those words and and not in a cynical way i don't think for a lot of them they do it because i think one it's it's the language of the community right there's a certain christian vernacular but i think some of it is that they really want to feel that way and they've convinced themselves they feel that way and sometimes they've you know there's a kind of an emotional crescendo in various times that and and worship where where you feel like you know this is uh, you know i'm i'm a different person uh than than uh, than i was but 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 then everyday reality sets in and those temptations and those fault lines that exist in all of us that are supposed to be at least mitigated to some extent for people who 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 are uh, who are followers of jesus that kind of gets obliterated and 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 then sometimes it's even worse in people who are who are who are christians because they're kind of blind to it. There's a spiritual arrogance. They think that they're um, that they're immune to those things, or that these kind of very twisted theological rationales kick in, and people can kind of convince themselves um, the, the human capacity to rationalize, to convince ourselves that anything that we're doing can be justified is um, is an amazing, amazing thing. And that's why we all need people in our lives. Uh, back to earlier topic we were talking about, you know, who, who can act as checks on that. Uh, and when necessary, can speak into our lives and say, look, you've, you've got to stray here. You've, you've, got to re- you've got to reset. So you've been a, a Christian, as you said, since you're, you were in college. And it looks like you went into politics really relatively early on. Like it, it must've been your early twenties right. that you started working in the Reagan administration, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, mid twenties. I, I was a speechwriter for William Bennett, who was secretary of education in the second Reagan term. Okay. Secretary of education. There's a few different questions that I have. Part, part of it is my kind of um, career hat. That's on like, how do you get a job like that? But uh-huh. part of it to, to what we're talking about is I think I had a sensitivity to where folks were putting extra biblical or even anti-biblical values ahead of actual scriptural, scripturally founded values um, early on, because as a Jew, I I didn't come to Christ until I was 29 years old. Mm -hmm. So as a Jew, we have this like allergy, if you will, to it. You know, it it was, it was my grandmother who actually, um, she, uh, this is, Interesting. Uh, so she lived in Cherniostra. Her, my, the Krivals and the Blicks, uh, my side of the family, my father's side of the family, lived in Cherniostrov in in Ukraine uh, mm. for at least 150 years, to what we can figure, uh, possibly possibly considerably longer. We're just trying to track with where um, Jewish emigration was. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very prominent. My great grandfather, uh, great great grandfather, was mayor of the town, and they had mills and very successful. And during a, it wasn't uh, exactly the same as it is now, but there were a lot of um, similarities in 1919, um, you know, leading up to, they, I think they left in the fall of 2020. Uh, and they actually landed on Ellis Island on March 3rd, 1921. So the, the reason I bring this story up is that um, number one, everybody hated the Jews. So it wasn't just the, the guys wearing crosses on their chests, mm-hmm. but it was it, it was typically after right around this time of year after Easter, where the guys with the crosses on their helmets or their chests were swinging swords, burning down their houses, raping our neighbors, mm-hmm. you know, 
uh, beheading or, or it's just, it was terrible atrocities that were committed. Um, and not to say that these guys were akin to the, our brothers and sisters from church that we're in Bible study with, but it was yeah. those kinds of things and historical atrocities, just like it, that gave us as Jews, a, a typical, a, um, a, uh, a particular sensitivity to it. Yeah. So when I became a Christian, it was um, 2000. And not too long after that, uh, my buddy Tommy actually came, came to the church where I was going. It was uh, 2002. And this is something where I think you and I might have some disagreements about, but he, it was in the lead up to the uh, Iraq part of the war. Mm -hmm. um, and he was teaching on Romans and he was at that time, he was very influenced. I don't know if you're familiar with John Howard Yoder's mm -hmm. um, work. Yeah. But there's another one that's, you know, yeah. anyway, his, it's very profound stuff. Howard Wasser's a big influence for, yeah. for Tommy, but he was teaching on Romans and was coming to these, um, coming to conclusions. And I thought pretty well-founded scripturally of non-violent uh, resistance was, was more the Christian way, if you will, on putting it in, Mm -hmm. um, more simplistic terms than he would, but he didn't even mention Iraq, but there was such an uproar in the church that that was my first experience with this sort of thing that, that it sounded like, you know, anti-Republican, anti-American, anti, you know, all the things that I sure. was like, Whoa, is this stuff more important than the Bible? Yeah. To the extent that Tommy would, would never be able to, to teach in, in that church again. So anyway, all that as, as a as background to ask, you have been very early um, warning, the, the raising the flag and saying, hey, this whole Trump thing, no, this is this is a no go, you know, right. but were there other times in your career or just in your life uh, going to church where um, this this marriage, if you will, uh, was concerning to you or was it not until it really got uh, we really started to see uh, Christian nationalism come to the foreground or what, what has that been like for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Uh, no, it, it was not new to me when the Trump era, I've written about warnings. It was, it was actually interesting. The first thing that I think I ever had published was a letter at the in the Tri-City Herald, which was the newspaper in a place called Richland, uh, with Tri-Cities, Richland, Pasco, Kennewick, and Southeast Washington. That's where I grew up. And it was published in December of 1980. So I was in college at the time. And it was a letter in response to a guy um, whose last name was Mays. And he had written um, something in the, in, in the uh, Tri-City Herald that conjoined the Reagan agenda with Christianity and the right-wing agenda, conservative agenda, opposition to the ERA of, and a, you know, defense spending and a whole series of other things, I think Second Amendment and so forth. And, um, you know, and I was sort of conservative at the time. Some of the stuff I, I disagreed with him, some I would probably agree with him. But the reason I wrote that note and this is early on in my Christian pilgrimage, um, is that I said that this conflation of Christianity with a political agenda was very dangerous. And the last line in the piece uh, in that letter that I wrote was uh, something to the effect that uh, Jesus died 
for Republicans, independents, and maybe even a few Democrats. <laughs> um, and so that was almost as early as I became a Christian. I was wary of the conflation of power, political power and politics with Christianity. Um, I wrote a piece in the 1990s for the Brookings Review, which was a screw tape letter. I did it in the model of oh. Lewis and screw tape letters, warning on exactly this issue um, of the, the twinning of, of faith and politics in a negative way. Mike Gerson and I wrote a book in 2010 called City of Man, Religion and Politics in a New Era. Uh, we were both alarmed by the sort of Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson misuse of faith. So that's been something that's been consistent in my entire Christian life. The Trump era was just a, a particularly awful manifestation um, of it. And I think probably a cautionary tale of what happens when you when you're not alert to it, where it can where it can end up. Well, there's so much more to dig into here, but I don't want it to be all dire <laughs> because in, in your book, one of the things that you do in uh, the death of politics is uh, the subtitle is how to heal our frayed Republic after Trump. Are you still as hopeful that, that we can heal? And, 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 and if so, how do we do it? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know if I'm hopeful that we're going to to heal. I mean, I, I, I hope we do. Do I expect that we will? I think over time we will. Um, I should say that a friend of mine years ago said that it's fine to be a theoretical pessimist, but you should be an operational optimist. Um, and <laughs> I like uh, that. So yeah. expound on that for me. Well, you know, regardless of what your what your theory of 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 how um, you know theoretically how 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 things unfold or how they eventually end, and I think I'm temperamentally like I think most people, pretty hopeful about that. But even if you weren't, you have to act operationally optimistic. That is, you have to believe that one has the capacity, uh, individuals have capacity to change events. Cultures and countries have a, have the capacity to change events and to pursue justice and to move us closer to justice. That sounds like our our founding fathers. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's you know it's very much it's this sense of of uh, we live in a broken and a fallen world, um, and we're not going to make it a completely just. It's not going to be an uh, edemic, you know life on this world it's 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 fallen but all of us in our individual lives and collectively we can you know nudge things along in you know i think obama used the phrase a more perfect union we can nudge things along toward toward justice and we have to find out ways to uh, to to do it, and you can't be paralyzed because you think, look, this is this is hopeless. This is uh, you know such such an overwhelming problem. There's nothing to to do. Years ago, a friend of mine used an illustration. He said, you know, uh, he, here he was talking about one's own life. But sometimes when when you feel like your own life is 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 scattered or broken or or uh, or you're over overwhelmed, he said, you know, it's it's like if you walk into a room and the room is you know, the bed's unmade and there are clothes all over the floor and books are all scattered and it's just an utter mess. He said, you can either stand there and look, not doing anything and say, this is just an awful mess. 
I, you know, I can't envision cleaning this up. Or you can pick up the socks at your feet and put them away, put them in the laundry hamper. And then you go to the next thing and then you go to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. And then over time, the room, you know, the room gets, gets cleaned up. So uh, that's, that's, uh, those are all, I think, helpful ways to, to, to view it. I would say on, on, the, on, the, on the positive side, maybe on the hopeful side, several things. The first is that uh, we've had worse periods in American history than uh, than this for, you know, for sure. I mean, we had, we did have a civil war where in a country of 29 million, um, yeah, 700,000 died, that would be the equivalent of seven, seven million people to, to today. And then you had the, the terrible reconstruction afterward. And then you had Jim Crow, you know, with segregation, you had the founding of the country, the, the Adams Jefferson first really legitimate a contested election in American history in 1800 was a brutal, brutal affair. And if you read historians, they'll said that that almost, you know, tore the tore the young republic um, apart. We even had, you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, tremendous convulsions, cultural convulsions. You you had the sexual revolution, the generation gap, the Vietnam War, the Black Power movement, riots in the streets, Kent State you know, on and on in a really, you know, compressed period of time, as I said. Um, so this has happened and the American capacity for self-renewal is, is I think, pretty, pretty impressive. And the other thing I would say is that an awful lot of people that I know are not happy with the state of, of things in America, the political and civic culture that we're, that we're dealing with right now. Um, which means that there is what, what social scientists refer to as the exhausted majority. A lot of people who are seeing something want to change, and they're not sure exactly how to do that. Um, but those people exist. And, you know, it's, a, it, it's a, I guess, in, in the spirit of Tocqueville, there is an American habit of, of mind and heart to fix things, often at a, at a local level, but to see these problems and to repair the the, uh, the wounds and I see an awful lot of people trying to do that to think creatively about what can be done to to heal I see it in the evangelical world uh, because there's so much in my estimation the estimation of a lot of friends of mine a lot of ruin not complete ruin by any means but a lot of ruin that that we've seen and people are trying to think creatively um, and intentionally about how that can be be rebuilt and it's also a sense that you know that the, I don't think human beings are meant, flourishing doesn't take place in this kind of an environment um, in terms of the political and culture with so much antipathy, so much mutual contempt, so much hate. And so I, I hold out the hope that, um, I used an analogy prior to the, to the pandemic where I said sometimes viruses create their own antibodies. I think I write about that in, in the book. Um, and, you know, sometimes in an individual life, as well as the life of a, of a country, there are certain um, qualities, virtues that we take for granted. And when they're stripped away from us, we're reminded why they mattered in the first place. And sometimes when things like honor and integrity uh, and human decency are, are, are stripped away, we see why they actually matter and you, and you want to fight for them. Even I would say in this moment, I, I've been struck by the almost electric effect the President Zelensky of Ukraine has had, not just on people in this country, but throughout the Western world, because it's such a courageous struggle. Uh, it's, it's, of course, filled with just horror in terms of what Russia is, is the, the, the decimation and, 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 the, and the death and the ruin that's visiting Ukraine. But the courage 
uh, and and the, uh, the 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 love of country and the honor that we're seeing and Zelensky's own words. And you could see that that's stirring the human heart, you know, for a lot of people. So that those things are there. I think it's it's a it's it's both tapping into it in a sense, animating those those better angels or empowering the better angels of our nature, and then trying to figure out programmatically in all sorts of realms. What does that mean? What does it mean in the political realm? What does it mean in the realm of faith? What does it mean in the realm of one's own family life and in their na- you know, in one's neighborhood? Um, one person acting alone uh, may not make much of a difference, but a lot of people acting together can create a, a, a culture. Um, and so I have a sense that people want to do that and are starting to do it. At the same time, we're very deeply, deeply polarized, the most polarized since the Civil War. And one thing that's particularly worrisome to me is that a lot of people have just exited, taken an off-ramp from truth and reality. And that's just very hard because if you can't have a common set of facts or, or agree on certain truth propositions, um, you know, that makes politics in a, in a free society pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah, I think you asked that question uh, and it was the piece I, I want to say it came out yesterday. How do we repair the breach and achieve some measure of social peace. I found actually your answer uh, somewhat surprising because part of the answer candidly is that we have to fight those who, as you say, can't be reached by reality. Um, So how do we fight those who can't be reached by reality, but how do we also provide an on-ramp back to reality, as you would say, for those who can? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is um, disaggregation, uh, wise disaggregation to try and figure out who it is that, you know, that, that one is is dealing with. And this Atlantic essay that you're referring to um, was focused in on the email exchanges between Ginny Thomas and um, and Mark Meadows. Ginny Thomas was a conservative activist, wife of, of uh, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice. Mark Meadows at the time was a chief of staff for for President Trump, and this was all surrounding the claims that the election was was stolen. And um, you know what you saw there. I think why it was it was a helpful ex- set of exchanges to read. There were twenty nine texts in all. Uh, they, they probably exchanged a lot more than that, but twenty nine were shared with Bob Woodward and and Robert Costa, two journalists. Um, you just saw what a distorted, disturbed, and dark world they they were in, and particularly with Ginny Thomas, she she is a true believer. It's hard to know whether Mark Meadows believed all of it or whether he was playing along with with some of it. They're not reachable, at least not now. And you have to just keep those people from power. All right, um, you've in, in this very concrete, specific way keep Donald Trump from winning uh, again in 2024 and to the degree possible defeat people who are Trump acolytes uh, from winning in the, in the house and the Senate. But for, for people who are reachable and those are people that may be somewhere on that continuum that Meadows and Thomas are on, but not to that degree. And they may be inflamed now, but they may not be inflamed later. So the question then is, well, how are those people reached? And there are different ways to do it. I do know that in my own life experience, both in terms of how I am and my own interactions with people who see things very differently than I do, who are Trump supporters, that you're not going to bludgeon them to into your position. You're not going to overwhelm them with data. You're not going to out-argue them. In my experience, to the degree that I've had what I think are successful interactions with 
with with others. A lot of it is, I think, listening well and listening to their story, uh, helping them to feel like they're not dishonored or viewed with contempt, um, and to find some kind of often areas of 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 agreement or connection in realms other than politics. So there's a sort of trust that builds up. And if you have a relationship in which there's trust, even affection or warmth in other areas, then I think both sides are more willing to listen to the other person when it comes to politics and to entertain the notion that maybe there's another perspective that uh, that exists. I read out in the book of, of friend of mine is who's in sort of right-wing ink the sort of conservative right-wing talk radio world and um i had written something in the new york times this was at the time that trump fired james comey and he was upset about it so we had an email exchange once we were getting to about the you know the third set of exchanges i could just tell that uh the the temperature was changing that he was getting angry, who was starting to make accusations about me. And probably, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I would have done a point by point rebuttal <laughs> to, to what he had done. And, you know, in my estimation, left it, you know, his arguments in a smoldering ruin, which would have been completely useless. It, it may have been uh, therapeutic for me to, to <laughs> temporarily, but it yeah, wouldn't have it, wouldn't have convinced him of anything. And it would have damaged our relationship and it would have required time and effort to, to repair that damage. So what I ended up doing is saying, so-and-so, look, um, I'm, uh, I'm not going to answer the charge you're making against me unless you really want me to. Let me try and explain how I think you see the world and let me explain how I see the world. And I did my level best to try and articulate how he viewed me and how he viewed his role, which was, this is a person who uh, is loyal to Trump. He believes that uh, he believed at the time that the success of Trump was connected to the success of the country. He felt like I was somebody who should have known better, given my lifelong experience in the Republican Party and as a conservative, there was a kind of betrayal uh, that I was no longer on, on the team. And for him, the loyalty the the virtue is loyalty. He sort of viewed himself, I would say, as a as a lineman trying to protect his quarterback, Donald Trump. And for me, it was intellectual integrity. It was the question: if uh, if Barack Obama or Bill or Hillary Clinton had done the same things that Donald Trump had done, what would I say about them? And what am I saying about him? And if the reason that I'm giving him a break and I'm coming down on them like a ton of bricks is because they're Democrats and Trump is a Republican and I'm a Republican. And therefore, the argument isn't really in any sense honest. It's tribalistic. That to me is a problem. And that's just how I that's how I come at these at these issues. So I laid these both scenarios out in a relatively objective way. And he wrote back and he said, you know, it was like a light bulb going on. I read your note two or three times. And he said, um, I remember him saying, you know, I'm not interested in being objective. I'm an advocate. But in that exchange, he was understanding my point of view. I was understanding his point of view. And then um, sometime after that, I was on the GW Parkway driving into work, the GW Parkway here in the DC area. And it was in the context of a mass shooting that had taken place. And it was uh, it was one in Florida in which some of the students were leading a movement against the um, you know, a gun control movement, which he very much disagreed with. 
But I heard him say to his audience, um, you know, disagree with these high school students uh, if you if you want uh, on the Second Amendment. I don't agree with them either, but don't go after them personally that they had just been through a very traumatic experience where their classmates had been gunned down. And I remember he used the phrase that I've I've got socks that are older than these some of these kids are. And he was basically saying, give them a break, uh, engage in their arguments, but don't personalize the attacks against them. And since I heard that, I wrote him a note when I got to the office the email and you know, said, thanked him for doing that and praising him for doing, doing that and knowing that his audience, which is a pretty energized audience, you know, may be resistance to that message. And he wrote back and he said, thanks. But he said, you know, I want you to know that that voice that you, you heard on the radio has been shaped by you. Mm. And that was an admission by him and true of me as well, which was we there was a greater mutual understanding. And we've had a lot of exchange. I just got a note from him today, actually, you know, in terms of of comparing thoughts and views, some things we agree with, some things we don't. But sometimes he'll call me in a sense because he has private doubts, doubts that he he wouldn't be wise for him in his estimation to express publicly. But he wants to share it with somebody. And so, you know, I don't know how you do that writ large, but I, I do know on a, on a more micro level, you know, that's the way that that kind of stuff has to, um, has, has to happen. And some of it is, I, I would say, you know, to view political conversations like, you know, marriage conversations or intimate relationship conversations. If, if you're, you know, have a spouse and, and they're upset at something you've done and they detect from you that you're not listening to them or you're not understanding them, or you come back with your own set of grievances, that conversation ain't going to end well. Mm. You have to have people who are tr try as best they can. Nobody does it perfectly. It was as best you can to listen well to other people, um, to make people feel, you know, um, that they're being treated with some degree of, of, of dignity. Often in my experience, if you can tell people what you think you've just heard or what they've just said in a way that resonates with them, that helps because yeah. then you're sort of saying, okay, that person at least gets where I'm coming from. Right. Right. Yeah. So much of what you're saying makes a ton of sense. I, I think you summed it up. You were quoting Peter Coleman from Columbia when you said, yeah. uh, how can we do this by listening well and berating others less? But to your point, you know, uh, I don't think, yeah, I, I don't think that these, there's something that is really satisfying in the moment of, of throwing one of those rhetorical grenades and sure. feeling like you're scoring one for your team. Right. But I think it's only exacerbating much of the problem. You, you're not doing anything productive. Whereas, and I've experienced this too. I, I've shared a story about one of my kids who just turned 18, uh, eventually decided not to get the vaccine. But one of the reasons that he did that was because when he was um, coming to his decision, uh, he was initially saying, well, you know, I don't want to be a lab test. So he was thinking that maybe he'll wait till the FDA approval. In the meantime, he got beat up so bad, including by me, uh, mm -hmm. harassed and shamed. And he finally decided... No, you know, mm -hmm. a kind of an immature reaction to it, uh, to, to, to have that be the defining, uh, to, to allow that to find his, his ultimate decision. But I understood. 
And right. I also understood that because I participated in the dog pile on the rabbit, I lost my privilege to engage with him about it. And then finally I approached him much later, I think it was in the fall. And I said, look, man, let me just hear you. I just want to understand. Mm. And that's when I came to the understanding that, you know, beating him up and harassing him and shaming him was counterproductive. Yeah. That's a lovely story. Yeah. That's a good, it's a good model for parenting. So much of, I think of parenting is and human relationships, but in the context of what you're saying of, 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 of parenting is not that you get everything perfect. You don't make mistakes. It's how you deal with it afterward. I think that probably in the end means is, is a better teacher of, for children. I think they learn more if, if they see adults do exactly what you did, which is to come back and say, look, I, I didn't handle this exactly right. Let me, let me hear you better because we're all going to screw up and now we do it. You know, we do it, we do it all the time. So that's, it's, it's a very, it's a lovely story. But I, I also think that that work can be done with our neighbors when it comes yeah. to social and political issues or in our walk, you know, I, I, even as evangel, I mean, I still consider myself an evangelical, um, but I think that there are folks who study um, Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Ravi, in order to be able to get into that magical conversation where you're going to convince somebody within an hour to give their Lord to, you know, to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. I just don't think that's how it happens. Uh, maybe it does, um, but even then I, I would be suspicious of how deep the roots are if it, you know, to, to refer to the, the parable, but I think that it, it's more to do with what something you were describing before. And I kept on thinking of, of the phrase salt and light. Um, and there's a story of um, two salt granules and a salt shaker. And one, one is a, a younger one. One is an older one. The, the younger one is getting freaked out because all he knows is that every time they pick up the shaker, their friends are, are pouring out of it. And they're all just disintegrating, never to be seen or heard from again. And just they, the older one finally says, that may well be. But, you know, if I get shaken into that pot or whatever it is, um, that, that water and the stuff in that pot will never be the same again. So it's, I do think that what you did with your friend, um, listening, understanding, reflecting back to them what you think you understand is, is a way of, of being that kind of salt that it gives you that credibility to every once in a while, a friend recently who disagrees with me on, um, on some things, a very, very left of left atheist, uh, interesting, interesting person um, started uh, one of these with, um, let me gently posit, <laughs> you know, but we, yeah. we had enough of a rapport where when she said that, I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Let's do it. You know? Yeah. I think there's good work to be done if um, listening well and berating others less is a good one of those compass uh, things. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that, that is the, the, the Coleman, uh, I think approach and also John Haidt and, and, and several others, you know, my, I've, I've told people that I've learned more from psychology, social psychology, actually clinical psychology or psychologists over the last decade in understanding this political moment, much more from psychology than I have from political scientists uh, and, and, and others. I, um, I think probably as a general matter, I, I didn't fully appreciate how important human psychology was to politics, but I think particularly at this, at this moment. So when I've talked to 
people like John Hyde and John Roush, who did a wonderful book called Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, or read people like Coleman, who, who um, I wasn't aware of until, until John Hyde had introduced me to him, to his work. That kind of stuff is, is very, very um, helpful to, to me, just to understand what's the dynamic going on, how are brains wired, why do we react you know the way that we that we do and this is true not just for me in, in political conversations but also faith conversations theological conversations um to try you, you know you begin to understand when you're having discussions at least in my experience with people on issues and there's a particular intensity around those issues it's not really the issue per se it's it's what's underneath it and those conversations, those issues are proxies for core identity. And so if you, you disagree with somebody on an issue and you may think, well, this is puzzling, you know, we just have a disagreement on X issue, gun control, feminism, even abortion, or, you know, what the right posture should be toward, toward Ukraine and so forth. And you think, wow, this is, this is pretty intense over an issue. It's, it's because there's a core identity that's attached. So if they feel like their views are under attack, they feel like their core identity is under attack. And whenever we feel that, if we feel that someone is attacking us at our core, our belief system or something else, that elicits a, a, a very strong um, and often emotional response and different parts of our brain begin to take over. That's interesting. I think you ref referenced a, some studies that have been done about how intelligent, I think Dana Milbeck may have referenced similar studies or similar scholars who are working on this, how otherwise really intelligent people can come to views that are so at odds with reality. And it's in the, in the field of psychology. So I'm gonna have to dive into that and maybe reach out to some of those scholars so I can understand it better. But it's like yeah, a whole- a cognitive dissonance on steroids in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's 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 interesting. It, often, uh, it's more dangerous for very intelligent people. They're more susceptible to it because their intelligence can allow them to rationalize some really bizarre ideas in ways that are more difficult to rationalize for people who are not as 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 intelligent. It doesn't have to do with intelligence. You know, being susceptible to conspiracy theories and 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 wild beliefs. Um, it's not it's not an IQ matter. It's it's about a lot of other things, disposition, temperament, life experience, communities that we're a part of, all sorts of different different uh, different things. Um, and um, so it's, it's you know sometimes people are are really shocked that intelligent people seem to to believe certain things that just seem counter to 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 science and reality. I remember having a conversation with good friend, a very bright guy um, during COVID. This would have been summer of 2020. Um, and he was absolutely convinced uh, that hydro hydroxychloroquine was was the, the cure to, to uh, COVID. And there was nothing I could say, no CDC study that I could send him that would change his, his mind. He was just absolutely committed. And he was living in an epistemological world where all of those biases were confirmed. And he was reading, you know, he was listening to this nurse on YouTube or, or that person um, making the case for, for hydroxychloroquine. We know objectively that it 
didn't uh, cure COVID, um, just like uh, ivermectin. We, we, we now know that there was just a recent study that came out said it had no difference compared to a placebos. But that didn't matter, partly because there's trust in authority. And this person decided didn't matter what the CDC or the FDA or the National Institutes of Health said or what Francis Collins said, they're part of the establishment. Um, and I'm choosing to believe a different uh, set of experts. And um, so that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could do this all day. <laughs> I mean, as evidenced by the fact that I, I don't think I asked even 10% of the questions that I had prepared. This is, this has been a great, but I do have two more questions. Sure. Uh, one is, do you have any other questions for me? Yeah. I, um, I'd be curious if you could identify change, how are you different in your faith journey now than say 10 years ago? Uh, what, 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 what have you learned or, or are there certain views that you've calibrated, whether doctrinally or otherwise? How, how are you a different person in, in terms of your faith journey now, as opposed to say 10 years ago? There's a lot more salt. <laughs> I'm a lot more salty. No, um, that's, Wow. I'd have to go back and read some of the journals uh, from 10 years ago, but I think I am more at ease with the fact that I have questions. Mm. I am more at ease with that, which I'm uneasy about. Mm. Um, that that I, I, It may sound ironic, but... When I was reading, before I became a Christian, I had this voracious reading habit that led to me becoming a Christian mm -hmm. uh, because I had these questions that I felt palpably, which makes sense if you believe, you know, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If these questions are existential, you're going to feel it in your heart, soul, mm -hmm. mind, and, and, and physically, right? And to the extent that it, there were certain questions that were painful. You know, I think I, I may have shared this with you, I think when I first reached out, that there are certain works that were salves for me, uh, like the, the third, the third um, volume of N.T. Wright's big books, uh, the one on the resurrection. Yeah. That really helped me get more settled with the idea of an open universe and a, mm -hmm. a, a creator God that can act inside of his universe. And that you know, I don't have to necessarily buy everything that looks like a miracle per se, but there are some that like, yeah, that was a miracle. And yeah. Jesus bodily rose from the dead. I, I became much more at ease with that possibility. Um, and there were a lot of other questions. I think also they were partly theological, but more sociological because mm -hmm. my kids were still in a Christian school where, you know, there was an incident. This must have been about 10 years ago. When, uh, yeah, in the, during the Mitt Romney campaign and strangely like Romney Ryan were one of my favorite, uh, mm -hmm. tickets of all time, but, um, there was this, uh, community event. We had a speaker, uh, at the, the kid's school that I thought was going to be talking about the history of communism. She came from a Eastern European country, but her entire talk was about how, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, she made a point of saying Hussein, um, was actually a Marxist, communist, uh, possibly a terrorist. And at the end of the thing, I, I, it, the, um, the school is a classical Christian education. That's, mm -hmm. you know, their kind of core pillars of who they are. I just got up and I said, well, 
what does this have to do with classical Christian education? Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, I got shouted down. I got threatened out in the parking lot just for asking the question. Um, but these, these sociological questions of who are we as a people? Who are we primarily as a people? Are we primarily pro-Republican or right. pro, I don't know, I forget who the, the prominent conservative figures were, pro-Rush, pro-Sean Hannity, whoever it might have yeah. been. Or are we pro-Bible? Are we pro-God? Are we pro-Jesus? You know, mm-hmm. are we pro like doing this redemption project thing together? Um, yeah. So those were much more, uh, not just palpable, but painful at times. Yeah. And I, I think I'm more at ease with understanding, uh, with, with being uncomfortable with certain things and, and understanding that I'm going to explore some of these questions I have and problems that I'm grappling with and, and that it's a journey. And uh, when I breathe my last, I'll still ha- probably have some questions, you know, yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, I was, I was sharing with somebody um, yesterday about a, uh, a play that I wrote and it's now 30 years ago. It's called till the day I die. Um, I'd have to change the title if we published, republished it, but um, cause Odette's wrote a play of a very similar title. Uh, but the first half of the play is, um, is in the, uh, around the, the, uh, the deathbed of a uh, patriarchal figure in a family. And the audience is in the perspective of the eyes of the, um, uh, the, the person on his deathbed. Um, and then the, um, the second act is a year later at the unveiling of the grave, it's a Jewish family, not so surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, the character that I identified with back then was having a conversation with the ghost of his father. Uh, who was sitting on on his gravestone, and they were just talking about it. And um, I, I bring it up because I, I it it reminded me of what are some of the things that I'm going to be thinking about on my own deathbed, you know. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. There's there's sort of a, a Neil Simon esque kind of quality to the kinds of things I, I think I might be thinking of. But yeah. most of all, it's just I'll still probably have questions if I'm thinking. Um, but if I am thinking cogently and wisely. I, I feel myself going more in the direction of um, some of what Heschel talked about uh, in his book on the Sabbath, the appreciation of the sanctity in the mundane, mm. you know, mm. and yeah, the, the, um, the appreciation of just being with those I love. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So off the top of my head, that, it's a profound yeah, question. Good. I wish I had a more, I, I might want to write an essay so I can be more articulate. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's a very, very nice answer. It's interesting. I had a, a coffee with with uh, somebody I'd met. I'd spoken at a church a couple of years ago when I stayed in touch with this person. So we had coffee the other day, and um, he used a, 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 a um, description which which may resonate with you. Uh, he, he was talking about how different uh, theologies, theological templates, um, are are. Uh, uh, invoked by different different people, and and he talked about those that he's come across in in the Christian world, who view faith in a sort of formulaic way, like two plus two equals four, and he was more drawn than he had been in the past to the mystery um, of faith, the mystery of Scripture, and the mystery of God, and that he found himself pushing away from those who tried to give a formulaic mathematical answer to every question, every difficult question under the sun, theodicy, why do good people suffer? 
um, you know, there, there are an endless number of them, and that there are some people in the journey of faith who just want it to be neat and tidy and think that the answers are very obvious. Um, maybe they are, but for a lot of us, they're not. And uh, and there is something about the whole notion of of the mystery and the drama, and that's you're we're part of a story or a narrative. We're not part of a set of philosophical precepts. That's not what the story of of faith is. Yeah, yeah. I I'm another one of the things I'm not comfortable with is is the, those simple answers, those simple equations that can get you to, because I think it opens up the door for us to outsource our thinking. Yeah, you know? and maybe it's my Jewish background that I'm I'm. Uh, it's it's almost like a, as a Jew, if you're not suffering, you're not trying. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. So yeah. I'm a little right. bit more at home in that uh, in that realm. But yeah. um, I guess the last question I have is how can we find you online or, you know, find more about all the great work that you're doing? Oh, well, you kind of ask, you know, my main outlets are The Atlantic uh, Magazine and The New York Times. So if you Google uh, my name and uh, do, the, do The Atlantic, and The New York Times, they um, they keep a history of most of what I've written for, uh, for, uh, for them. And those are two great outlets for me. And, um, I've written a lot about faith. You were alluding to some of the pieces I've written for the, for the times in the past, but also for, for the Atlantic. Um, interesting thing with the times is that, um, that, uh, I've probably written between a dozen and 15 real, I would say theological meditations. That is, it's not politics and faith. It's, meditations, reflections, thinking my way through questions like where's God in the midst of suffering, the resurrection, the crucifixion, grace, um, humility, uh, the mode of conversation, why did Jesus use parables and answer, ask so many questions and so forth. And um, so they've been very, very good about um, about that. And I have a a wonderful editor there, uh, as well as a wonderful editor at at The Atlantic. And so I'm I'm a fortunate writer. I get to write uh, what's in my mind and heart and and um, and they're encouraging and and uh, and supportive. That's that's terrific. You probably hear Charles Mingus, the third in the background now. Oh, Dave, we've we've got Romeo, so I know exactly the kind of uh, the kind of thing you're dealing with there. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. I, like I said, I have so much more questions, but I'm going to have to invite you back if you if you be so sure, uh, kind I... to to come back. But um, I I really I just really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. I will definitely put links in the show notes for the book. Uh, for the Atlantic, fifty nine ninety nine. By the way, for the digital subscription, <laughs> a lot of other great writers in there. Uh, David French among them. Um, yeah. David Brooks in the Times uh, also writes theological uh, reflections in there, in addition to his sociological observations. Uh, just some great writers that have definitely helped me work through my own thinking and, and enrich my life in in very real practical ways. So. Um, I just appreciate you. It's such a thrill to get to talk to someone who's already been uh, an influence uh, on me and my thinking. So uh, I'm really grateful to you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to come back and uh, and take care. And thanks for, for sharing your own, uh, your own story. Yeah, that's terrific. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us politicsandreligion.us. You can even support our program through the Patreon app on our site. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.